Hi guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and we are back this week with another woman's hormone focus episode that I cannot wait for you guys to hear. After sharing the two amazing episodes with my dear friend and hormone guru, Elisa Vitti, episodes 20 and 21, for anyone who happened to miss those, I knew we had to continue this conversation. In today's episode, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Brighton is a prominent leader in women's medicine and the emerging science of post-birth control syndrome, setting the effects of hormonal birth control on female health, which you guys know I personally have suffered with in the past with post-birth control syndrome and lack of period and HA and all of that not-so-fun stuff. Dr. Brighton is a functional naturopathic medical doctor and nutritional biochemist, and I could have chatted with Dr. Brian all damn day because she is a wealth of knowledge, and in this episode, we dive into so many topics surrounding the birth control pill and its impact on women's health, tips on getting your period back, the best approach to food and nutrition for women, which I absolutely love, love what she has to say here. We also touch upon fertility and so much more. Dr. Brighton is also the author of Beyond the Pill, which I highly recommend picking up as it's such an amazing resource for us to have. I link to it over in the show notes. And for anyone who's looking to transition off the pill, or if you don't know how or what this means for your body or what to expect, this episode is for you. And I highly recommend picking up her book as well. I know you guys are going to love this episode as much as I do, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Please do share it over on Instagram if you enjoy our conversation and tag myself and Dr. Brighton. We would love to hear from you. This episode is packed with so much good stuff and I hope you all enjoy it and reference this episode as much as needed. It is a juicy, juicy one. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a moment to chat about my latest obsession, Sakara Life. As you guys know, I started ordering the Sakara Life meals a few months ago and I became absolutely obsessed. At first, I was super hesitant on having all plant-based meals, but their organic and ready-to-eat meals are an absolute dream. They require me to cook zero, and I'm getting sneaking in all these vegetables in ways that I never would on my own. They are so creative, and they offer foods and bowls and things that I usually don't make at home, which really makes me crave ordering their meals because I know it's not just the same things I'm cooking over here. Plus, you guys know I don't usually follow a plant-based diet or anything, so having Sakara Life means this girl is able to sneak in some extra veggies and things into her meals other than just salads, which they can get kind of boring at times. I shared last week's meals over on my Instagram stories, but a few of my favorites were the banana pudding parfait with this dreamy cashew cream. It was so good. It tasted like I was eating banana bread pudding for breakfast. The Sakara burger is one of my absolute favorites. I've had this probably half a dozen times now and it's served with these sweet potato fries and coconut bacon and so freaking good. The herb pesto pasta and rejuvenation bowl for lunch was filled with this butternut and delicata squash, cauliflower couscous, grapefruit, golden beets, cashew yogurt dressing. So good. See, these are things like I would never make at home, which makes me love these meals so much. They send you three meals each day and you can add in any snacks or things you want in between two, which I love. Sakara also sells so many other things besides their meals like supplements, teas. We love the teas over here. Even Jor does. Dark chocolate granola, which is to die for. And their metabolism super powder that has been super helpful on the days that I'm feeling so blah and fatigued and out of it, which 
we all are during this quarantine time. So I highly recommend their metabolism super powder because it really is a super powder. Right now, Sakara is offering an insane discount for you guys, 20% off of your first order using my code RACHEL20. Head on over to their site, sakara.com slash RACHEL20 to see what the next few weeks menus look like or to stock up on their other products. I'm not going to lie, their probiotic chocolates are absolutely delicious and you guys know how much I love my chocolate and my probiotics. So pretty much a dream combo for all my chocolate lovers out there. And if you have any questions on Saqqara, feel free to message me or the Saqqara team. We're totally happy to chat with you. And again, head on over to sakara.com slash rachel20 to place your first order today. All right, now let's dive into today's episode. I'm excited to have my audience listen to all of your knowledge and everything that you have to share. I personally have been a huge fan of yours for a while now. I've had my own like purse birth control syndrome, you can say with like Mm -hmm. gay and trying to regulate my hormones and period. And as soon as I've opened up about that on my blog and Instagram, I didn't realize how many other women are in the same position as me. So that's when I started to really kind of geek out over like the experts like yourself and learn as much as I can from you. I think I've listened to almost every podcast episode that you have been on and you have been on a lot of podcast episodes. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I've been on like close to 200. <laughs> okay, I've listened to probably around 15. If I okay. <laughs> because once, yeah. once I find someone, I just like want to absorb like everything that, that they learn. And I just think you have such an eloquent way of describing everything and I would love to start with your personal journey with the birth control pill. And that was like very inspiring to me because I think a lot of the times experts in in this field, this isn't in a bad way, but they haven't been through this and they have amazing tips and tricks. But the fact that you went through this yourself, I'd love to start with, with your own personal journey. I think you're so right with all of that. And in some ways, I think that I've had to go through a lot of the things that I've gone through to really build a deep sense of empathy for my patients. So when you're taught about anxiety, you're taught about anxiety. So in, in naturally medical school and medical school in general, it's like this uncomfortable thing. You know, sometimes it's debilitating, but the way it's taught to you, it wasn't until after I had my son, I developed postpartum thyroiditis. I experienced anxiety firsthand and I was like, my body thinks I'm going to die. Like this is newfound respect. And so, you know, with hormonal birth control, I, what I really appreciate about my experience with being on the pill. So I never used any other form of birth control. I used the pill and it really, it's very humbling to me, but it is my reminder not to gaslight myself. And you know, we talk a lot. So gaslighting has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. And we talk a lot about how, physicians will gaslight women. So if people don't know what that is, it's things like you're misremembering your period. Those aren't actually your symptoms. Mm, Your symptoms are not real. Oh, those symptoms, they're just in your head. You're imagining them. It's like a throwback to the days of hysteria. And I just want everyone to realize that hysteria was still a diagnosis in the 80s in my lifetime. And in addition to that, that the very clinicians that we are seeing today, they were residents under doctors who believed in hysteria. So this, we often think like, oh, what is that? Some 1950s stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still here. It's still pervasive. But 
as a society as a whole, we've really taught women to gaslight themselves. So you'll recognize this. I actually went through this with COVID and I still, so here I am in post COVID syndrome, it's super lame in case you're wondering four months. And I'm like, is this real? I don't know if this is real. And I have these moments and I'm like, yo, you are gaslighting yourself again. Yeah. And that's what I did while on the pill. Why did you go on the pill originally? Cause you were 17 yes. ish if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. So what made you go on birth control? Like, did you know what it was at the time? Let's just like give you some respect for being a good investigative journalist right there. (laughs) Yes, I was 17. I had no idea really what, how the pill worked. I was told that it's the same hormones that my body made. And really I had had periods that were seven plus days. I would vomit sometimes. I was in so much pain. I was missing school. I would bleed through my clothes I'm going to date myself here. This is back when tying a sweatshirt around your waist or wearing your overalls with the straps down was in fashion. And I really think it was period problems. <laughs> I was like, that's everybody bleeding through their clothes. Um, that would be covering that up or I'd have to go, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm on my period. On top of bringing my period products, I also need to bring a you know sec- second set of clothes. So you know, what is that in retrospect? I had estrogen dominance for sure. I had increased inflammation, increased prostaglandins. We can talk about all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So whenever people are like, I wish I had your book when I was 17. I'm like, I wish I had my book when I was 17. So I started the pill because my doctor was like, those periods, we can make them gone for good if you want. Like we can fix this. So, you know, back then at 17, it was mostly like, we'll fix your period problems here. Take this pill. By the way, you won't get pregnant. And so I wasn't sexually active at the time, but I was like, okay, if that comes along in the future, I'm covered. I don't have to worry about it. And I'm, I don't have to have these debilitating periods. And what followed is a long saga of like 10 years of issues that I kept being told was me. And I thought it was me. So at uh, one point, so my body, so I come from a very large Hispanic family and we make a joke that if you look at her, if you look at a woman in our family, they will get pregnant. So like everybody has three plus children. I'm the only one to go to 30 years old before I had a baby. People were like, she's just infertile. Like we don't even know what's wrong with her. My mom got pregnant with me when she was 16. My grandmother was having her kids as a teen. So for people to understand that I know what a teen pregnancy is. I'm a product of one. Um, and I'm well acquainted with all that. Because sometimes people are like, oh, she's anti-birth control. I'm like, who doesn't know? I'm not anti-birth control. I'm not anti, like, a woman having a choice to choose whatever she wants for her body. I certainly did. And I'm grateful because I'm a first-generation college student. But my body kept trying to bleed and trying to ovulate. and try, kept trying to do its thing. So it had break, breakthrough bleeding. And my doctor switched me to another version of the pill. I really wish I had documented all of this back then. I ended up with really significant depression. At the time, there's no studies to really support any of this. I'm told it's all in my head. I mean, we're talking so bad. I like stopped showing up to work at one job because I just couldn't get out of bed. I was crying all the time. I would be in the shower and I would end up just sitting down in the shower. I would run out of hot water and just be crying and just be like, I can't, I'm not motivated to do anything. I was a dancer. I was dancing like several days a week. I, you know, would, we would go and go to great America and theme parks and perform stopped, just stopped showing up, started dodging people's calls. I thought, Oh, like I thought, okay, something's wrong with me. This is just me. 
I'm lazy. My doctor's like, well, I don't think it's the pill, but let's change the formulation. And lo and behold, all of that started to resolve and my mood symptoms went away. So on top of mood symptoms, I went through, so then comes out the formulation where it's like, have your period only four times a year. And I was like, I'm so smart, smarter than my body. Let me not have my period. Like I'll have it when I want to have it. So I said like, I'll bleed when I want to bleed. Like I will control my body. And I ended up developing vaginal uh, yeast infections. So chronic yeast vaginitis. I had pain with sex, vaginismus. And I go through all of this in my book and I tell, I have to tell you, I didn't want to write about that. I like wrote it and I was like, take it out, write it, take it out. And my husband said to me, you always say, share your story because you never know who is going to heal or know that healing is possible by hearing that. And he's like, and now you're going to take out this whole story. And I was like, dude, I'm talking about my vagina in my book. Like this is, this is vulnerable. So those were a lot of the hiccups while I was on the pill. And it wasn't until I was in medical school that I was actually told how fertility worked. And that was framed as it always is. If a woman wants to get pregnant, there's really one day out of the month that she's fertile and it's sperm that lives five, six, maybe seven days. And I just was sitting there going, wait a minute, I've been taking a pill every single day and suppressing my fertility. And yet I, I've got one day out, like what is going on here? And then as I started to learn, because I was learning pharmacology and how to prescribe and here I was going to be prescribing this birth control pill and actually learning how it worked. And I was like, what am I doing? And here I am at this point, I'm not sexually active and I'm like, I'm getting off this thing. Like I'm, I'm just getting off of it and I'll just figure it out. If I have a partner in the future, I will just figure it out. But I know I've been doing this for 10 years. And I was told initially when I started it, 10 years was the expiration date. After 10 years, the breast cancer risk goes up. At which point when I got to 10 years, my doctor was like, yeah, well, the risk is so minimal. We don't really worry about it. You can just stay on it. And I was like, are there new studies? And you know, the answer was no, there's not a whole lot of new research. We just don't regard that to be true anymore. And it just didn't sit right with me. So that's when I decided to come off of birth control. And how did you know how to like transition yourself off it? Because I think that's one of the biggest issues now is that like, I mean, I personally, when I wanted to stop taking birth control, you wanted to start a family and I hadn't had a period in like 10 years, I was on the pill and I just went off cold turkey, like, and that clearly didn't really do me any good. But how did you know how to like transition your body? Did you just go off cold turkey and then get your period back? Or like, how did you regain your cycle? Mm, so I stopped at the end of the pill pack. So if you're going to stop the pill, the best time is like just to finish out the pill pack and then stop. And I thought, well, I had regular periods before getting on the pill. I would have regular periods coming off the pill. Nope. My period was gone and I was very concerned. So again, guys, this is why it's like I came from a really big, big, big fertile Hispanic family and like nobody has PCOS. Nobody has trouble making babies, okay? Not a, not a problem. And yet I lost my period. Now I started my period at 14, had it 15, 16, then started the pill at 17. I was closer to 18. So I had regular periods. I went to my doctor. I said, my period's gone. I stopped the pill. I had that first withdrawal bleed. So that's, you guys, if you don't know, the pill, the pill bleeds, it's just that. They're not periods. 
So I had that first one and now it hasn't come back. Like it's just gone. Like, and you know, I'd come up on three months and he said, you're, you've likely always had that. It's likely your periods have always been irregular and you're just misremembering them. This is why I tell my patients to always write down and document things because it's very hard to gaslight you. That's gaslighting. That's not believing me and making up a story that's more convenient and easier to get me out of the office, quite frankly. So if you have it written down, it's a lot harder because then you're, someone says that to you and you're like, no, I'm reading it right here and I, this, is, this is how it is. But for me, I'm like, uh-uh. I counted down my period like it was doomsday coming because I knew if there was a pool party, I wasn't going to a pool party. I knew that like, you know, if, I mean, I had to plan everything around these horrific week long events that were my period that just made me think my body was betraying me. Like I hated my body. I hated my body for bleeding and putting me through that, which is a big reason why I decided I'll bleed when I want to bleed and I will be the master of my body. God, I look back and I'm like, I wish someone just told me how to work with my body because periods and use those on their own. Yeah, totally. Because these hormones give you superpowers and you do not access those same mm-hmm. hormones while you're on birth control. So when I came off, it was missing period. So amenorrhea, cystic acne. I'd not had acne issues uh, previously. You know, it was like you get a zit here or there. Yeah. It was like a beard of acne. It was so painful and deep. I had acne on my Back. I was like, what is this about? And then, you know, I had a lot of mood symptoms that were accompanying that. And when my period finally came back, which was because I have a background in nutrition. So I was studying, I studied concurrently nutrition science and didactic, which was to go to the registered dietitian route. So it's like, I knew, okay, how to leverage food to work with hormones, work with your body. So I started utilizing that along with what I was learning in herbal medicine and naturopathic medical school. And that's how I was able to bring my period back, clear my skin. I mean, I never even wanted a baby. So here's the thing. I was like, I'm not having a baby. Like everybody in my family has babies. I don't even want a baby. Things change when you're suddenly are met with, but you might not be able to have a baby. And it really gave me pause. And I really had to reflect because I, to no longer have the choice really made me panic. I was like, I don't even know if I could have a baby if I wanted. So it took some time. Most of those interventions that I had to go through actually began to apply to my patients who had the similar symptoms of post-birth control syndrome. And a lot of that is found in Beyond the Pill, which is my book. And, you know, I'm really grateful to have gone through that experience because I, I mean, you guys, I talk about this in my book, but when my period did finally come back, I wasn't expecting it. And I bled through my clothes in school. I was in medical school and I bled through my clothes in a chair. And oh my God, that threw me back into some like 14 year old Mr. Atkins science class, PTSD, everybody leaves. And he's like, Jolene, it's time to get up. Jolene, it's time to go. Like class is over. And I'm like, I literally can't. I like can't, I can't leave. I don't know what to do right now. Like, what am I going to do? So you think it would be less embarrassing as an adult. It sucks just as bad. Uh, But did you have like a sense of pride when it came back when you were older? Like, oh my God, I did it. 
No. Um, not that, okay, so yes, that I was like, yeah, like I figured some stuff out. My doctor yeah. said I had PCOS, I called BS, and like here I am. Like, yeah, definitely. But in that moment, no, I'm like, you guys, people listening can't even see me, and I'm squirming. I'm like, squirming because I'm talking to you because <laughs> that's how it felt. It's like, I'm like sweating a little bit too. Um, is that I was just like, oh my God, these are my colleagues for life. And like, I have to get up and I let, this is like way before Instagram, people were bleeding through their clothes being like, yo, it's cool. It's fashionable. It's not cool. It's just like, it is right. Um, yeah. So at the time I was just like, oh my God, my colleagues are going to see me and they're going to see me in a conference in like 10 years. And they're going to be like, oh yeah, I went to school with her and she bled through her clothes. You, okay. Everyone listening, you would expect better of doctors, but they are people. They are humans. Um, so at this, like, that's something that I'm like, I would hope that they're, they're better than that. But th- those were the thoughts that were running through my head. And great, grateful that I was an adult at a time. So I could just be like, oh, I just have to finish up some stuff. And the instructor wasn't going to sit there and hound me to get up and leave. And then I was like, okay, mad dash, backpack holding it behind my back, or uh, computer bag holding it behind my back and like going to the bathroom and assessing and yeah. Like a high school nightmare, like a middle school nightmare when you're first getting your period and you get it. And then like everyone's staring at you and gawking and yeah, your adult version of that. Totally. How did you know though, that like what the symptoms you were feeling that really heavy flow. And if you were feeling really shitty again, like how did you know that wasn't right? Like, what did you change? Make Like what were some of like the changes in your lifestyle that kind of helped you manage having a more manageable period? Hmm. Well, so one thing is, is that when, um, so this is important to understand is that I'm going to talk about a lot of food changes that you can make, but something I do have to talk about is that I was raised in poverty. So teen pregnancy, I'm third generation immigrant and I was raised in poverty. So there were times where we were eating government cheese that like all that was in the house was cereal. So you know, when I look back at that, it's like, it would have been great if I could eat more cold water fish. Dude, nobody had salmon back then. Like you ate tuna from a can like that. That was like as close to, especially because I grew up in the mountains. Yeah. And so if you do air quotes, yeah, I hope it was tuna. (laughs) Um, But so, you know, when it comes to like, food deserts and food scarcity. And I, I, like, I know this and I understand this, um, well. So, you know, that was part of my childhood. Now, as I began to study nutrition, which was in my twenties, I actually became a vegetarian and I was a vegetarian up until I got a copper IUD. So that is a non-hormonal contraceptive. And if you ever have a history of heavy, painful, long periods, don't do it. I did it. I was like, I'm just going to try it anyways. Um, and that was a bad idea. I became anemic. And so people who are vegetarian right now, I'm not dogging on being a vegetarian. The reason why I stopped being a vegetarian is because I, my ferritin, my storage form of iron was three. It really should be like 80. Oh, wow. And I was told you need to supplement with iron. And I have always been a food as medicine person. So at that point I was like, so what I'm hearing is my diet's not working for me. Like I need to eat meat. So that was something in my twenties. I was a vegetarian throughout that. I stayed a vegetarian even after I came off of the pill. And uh, so why does that matter? Well, because as a vegetarian, 
I took eating vegetables. Like that was my job. So in my twenties, I started eating. My goal was to eat six to nine servings of vegetables a day. If I could get up to 12, like this is, I don't know why increments of three, that was just my jam. I was like, if I can get up to 12. So that's one thing is I started doing, you know, a lot more vegetables in my diet. So why does that matter? Because we got high amounts of fiber coming in and plant diversity helps your microbiome. Your microbiome is the good critters that grow in your gut. It's not just bacteria. There's yeast, there's viruses. There's probably some stuff we don't even know about because that's science, right? And they, if they are imbalanced, they can secrete a enzyme in higher amounts called beta-glucuronidase. Now, the way it goes is that estrogen which is awesome, plumps you up, gives you curves, uh, helps with ovulation, baby making, all of that. However, too much of it, you're gonna be irritable, moody, you're gonna be bloated, like weight gain, like uh, there's just all these issues that can, and PMS and heavy painful periods. Now, if you're tending to your microbiome and you're eating fiber, you're going to stand a much better chance at optimizing hormones. The other thing that's always been part, so cruciferous vegetables always winning in the research. So yeah. back in my early 20s, I was like, I'm going to eat a cup or more every day of cruciferous vegetables. That was part of the whole plan. So with that, your liver packages up estrogen. So your ovaries make estrogen, so do other tissues. When you're no longer needed, your liver's like, got you, let's package it up, let's get it out. We've got phase one and phase two liver detox, which is all about getting healthy metabolites of estrogen. Two is the best. Four, 16, not so good. And that's because they can cause DNA damage, change tissues. And if you guys are like, whoa, 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 what is all of this? Liver chapter of my book, which is called Birth Control Hormone Detox 101. It's called that to help you understand how you detox hormones. But then some people took it as like, oh, you can't detox these hormones unless you're doing a detox. No, no, no. Read the whole chapter. It's pretty nerdy. So you package up this estrogen, you move it out. It can move out through your urine. This is why we do urine testing to see what your estrogen levels are. And you can move it out through the bowels. And so bile, bowels, moving it out, except if you've got too much beta-glucuronidase because of dysbiosis and imbalance in microorganisms, then you're going to reactivate your estrogen. It goes back into circulation. Now it's stimulating uterine tissue. It's stimulating your brain, making you feel irritable and cranky. It's causing your boobs to grow. It can be cysts, whether it's in your breasts and your ovaries. So it causes a lot of problems. So that's one thing that has like that helped me in terms of my periods coming back and not being like so wicked, painful, and awful. Is tending to my gut health tends to inflammation. Increase and so you know, increasing the fiber, increasing things that help estrogen. But with the you know, I still had these heavy periods that came back immediately. So, why is that? So, did I do like there wasn't even Dutch testing back then, which is like such a great test now for hormones. So, do I know for a fact these things? No, I didn't test these things. I was a poor college student, I actually was on food stamps, I did not have money. Okay, um, I worked, I had to work my way through college, like I worked like 10 to 20 hours a week, plus going to school, and like so I, I was hustling. So, with that though, when you do come off of hormonal birth control. What can take some time is for brain ovarian communication and ovulation to be restored. What I think happened is that for several months, I didn't ovulate. So I didn't ovulate. I didn't spike that progesterone. I didn't drop that progesterone. I didn't have a bleed. And instead, 
estrogen just got to stimulate the endometrial lining. And so the endometrial lining is the lining of your uterus that caused hyperproliferation. So the tissue grew, grew, grew. My first period was like clean house, like everything's got to go. And at that point I had a really heavy period. It wasn't like incredibly painful. Like they were, like I remember them as my teens And part of that was just what I explained in diet. There's way more that I could get into with everyone, but I think that's like some of the most simplest things that we can change that's 100% in our control. Do you ever, do you recommend people cutting out like gluten and dairy and watching like sugar intake? I know that a lot of the times, and I have like a handful of questions that I kind of broke down into categories for us, like help guide guide the next like set of um next conversation but a lot of the times when someone has ha they're coming off of like an eating disorder right mm-hmm. they want to get their period back and they're told okay great cut out gluten dairy watch your sugar intake and that just like messes with your head even more like do you yeah actually find that cutting unless you have an allergy of course or an intolerance or something but do you actually find that cutting out those foods cold turkey like does impact your periods or menstrual cycles positively Okay, so let's break that down. So firstly, hypothalamic amenorrhea, HA, is what you just said, Sophie. Like, what's that? That's when you lose your period. So that's what I had. I had hypothalamic amenorrhea because we couldn't figure out what else it could be. That commonly is associated with overtraining, so over-exercising, or under-eating, or both going on. So an eating disorder can underlie that. And I am very much of the mindset that if you have an eating disorder, you need to work with someone who specializes in eating disorders. And this is where if I have a patient, they tell me I have a history of eating disorders. We do not take out food. And I'm like, I have a background in nutrition. I use a lot of like nutrition in my practice. However, we must be coupled with someone who's an expert, which is generally a registered dietitian who works with eating disorders so that you do not get triggered. Eating disorders are not just about your relationship with the food. They are a mental health issue. And that's like, if you had severe anxiety or depression, I would be working with a psychiatrist or psychologist alongside, so alongside your care. Like I wouldn't be going that alone. So it's very important that one, I don't do food dogma. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I don't like this idea that food is bad, that gluten's bad, sugar's bad, dairy's bad. There's no bad food, right? Okay. So people always say to me, no, what about junk food? I'm like, well, that's not food. Like, okay. Like when you process it that much, that's not even food. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about whole foods. There's no bad foods. And we have to shift that mindset because when people hear, oh, a food is bad, then they eat that food because you're a human and it's what you're designed to do is seek out the most calorically dense, easy to like consume food, like chocolate bars, um, as possible. Like You're not bad. You're doing exactly what you're designed to do, but we'll take it and we'll say, oh, I'm bad. I ate the cake. The cake is bad. I am bad. That is all bullshit, you guys. Like We've got to drop that. That's just uh, that's just been some stuff that's really been weaponized against the female psyche. And Scott, we got to go. We got to go with it. So, with that, my approach has always been: let's focus on nutrient dense foods that nourish you. So that what we essentially do, and this is what I talk about in Beyond the Pill. I don't want you focused on what to cut out. That was a lot of back and forth with my publisher because. I get we need to have a list, but I don't want people walking away and being like, oh, you can see my frustration on my face. But the, really the focus is 
I'm going to give you meal plans. I'm going to give you food that's so good and so nutrient dense and really loves up your body. Like when you eat six servings of vegetables a day, it's very hard to then go into like six to eight servings of grains a day. Like when you eat that much fiber, like you don't need to be getting it from these other sources. And so it's about not, and I'm even careful to say like crowding out the less desirable food, but it's about focusing intention and impact on your body first with what does it need and really serving it with that. And so when it comes to hypothalamic amenorrhea or really any other hormonal condition, can it be beneficial to cut out gluten, dairy, sugar? Yes, it can. And we have to look at the individual in this conversation. So in Beyond the Pill, I'm going to have you test things. Is gluten the devil? No, it's not. Uh, somebody's gonna like definitely want to crucify me for saying that, but it's oh, not. I say that all the time, so I agree. I'm yeah, in it, agreement with you. It doesn't work for some people, okay? So like, I use the example of my husband and I. He's my canary in the coal mine. If we get glutened in the United States, he gets a migraine, and I know within two to three days I'm gonna have debilitating joint pain where it feels like someone has crowbars in my joints. Like it's horrible for me. But that wasn't true for me when I was living in France. And I've seen the same thing with my patients. I've also had patients that cut out gluten, bring it back in. They're like, I don't notice any difference. So we have to test what is true for you. When it comes to dairy, there's actually a good argument to be made that if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea um, and you've been restricting calories and food, you know, dairy can be a really great source of fat soluble, soluble nutrients and healthy fats. And when you get grass-fed dairy, you can have higher amounts. You can even get omega-3s from that, but you can have higher amounts of antioxidants being present in that dairy source. So does that mean it's bad? You know, the thing is, is that we have to ask, oh, it's true for you. If you have an eating disorder, we're not cutting out foods and testing them without you getting the okay green light. Usually we also have like a mental health specialist as part of this as well. We have to be very, very aware of like, what are the first signs of you getting triggered? And I won't make those prescriptions without talking with your other providers. So, and then with sugar, so dairy and sugar are really common culprits with acne, and, but it's not true for everyone. And really my goal is always like, let's figure out what's true for you. I want to help you build your user manual. And that's why Beyond the Pill is like, you can skip around, you've got to document stuff yourself. Like you, I want you to build the user manual to your body and I wanted to build a book that like traveled with you through your life cycle, like that you, you got a problem that came up 10 years later, go back to be on the pill, troubleshoot it, figure out what's mm -hmm. going on. And so with that, there are people who do get acne when they eat dairy. I'm someone that I know, oh, uh, if you put, if you put milk in my coffee, if I'm drinking lattes, I'm definitely going to get some acne. If it's cheese, I know how far I can go with cheese and I will eat the cheese. And sometimes the cheese is so good that I'm like, I know I'm going to break out and I don't even care. I'm doing it. <laughs> that is me being informed about my body and making an informed decision. So same with sugar. So for, with sugar in particular, you know, that can spike insulin. It's going to be worse with polycystic ovarian syndrome most of the time, but that, that whole cascade can, can trigger acne to come on. So if that is what's true for you, then you need to understand that if you go eat ice cream oh, or gelato, uh, so good. But if you're going to eat all that dairy and sugar, to know that, hey, in the next few days or week, I might break out. And why that's important is it doesn't mean you stop enjoying your life. And it doesn't mean like acne also shouldn't make us not enjoy our life. 
But what it means is that you know, so that several days later when acne pops up, because what do most of us do? We're like, what happened? What did I do yesterday? Like, what did I put on my face last night? Maybe it's this, maybe it's, you know. You're like, oh, uh-huh, yeah, I knew. I knew I was gonna eat that gelato, and I know this will pass too, and I know what I can do about it. So is that helpful? That was like a lot of information. No, so helpful, because what I was gonna say is that I don't know anyone who, and I could be wrong, again, I don't know everyone in the world, but I don't know anyone who's like, I cut out gluten and got my period back. Like that could be very serendipitous and a coincidence, but I know that for me personally, I've never loved dairy. I don't like cheese. I like cheese on pizza. I like cheese on a burger. I'll, you'll never see me with cheese and crackers, like wine tasting. It's just not my thing. I never had a glass of milk ever. I stopped breastfeeding in January and didn't get my period back. And I started having dairy yogurt every single morning. And like a month later, I got my period back. And I was... I'm still wholeheartedly convinced it is just from like a dairy nutrition, like like lack of nutrition from that like source of something. Like again, I'm not an expert in this, but I felt like that changed so much when I started having that. And everything I've heard is like cut dairy out, cut this out, and like it help you get your period back. But it just stresses your brain out even more, and the stress in your brain is not going to get your period back. That's just I've also suffered from very high cortisol levels, so stressing over what to eat. It's just going to help mix, suppress my ovaries even more to like not have a period. So I'm so happy that you said that. And it's yeah. so important. Well, let's talk about that stress piece because you hit the nail yeah. on the head right there. Okay. Reproductive health is incredibly energy expensive. Like it's energetically expensive. So that's what I'm trying to say there. So being a reproductive female who is ovulating regularly, who could then have a baby, then breastfeed, uh, they're so energetically expensive. So if your brain, your body perceives that the environment is not safe, it will not be ovulating. You will not be able to maintain a pregnancy. You will not be fertile. Why? That's your body's way of keeping you safe. So if you restrict food, restrict calories, that definitely can do it, right? If we're over-exercising, like, I hate to break it to you, but your brain ain't that evolved. It's like, oh my God, there's a lion or tiger or bear. Oh my, like something's going to kill us, which is why we're over-exercising and running all the time. And it doesn't know that you got stressed out because of your boss or your finances or any of that. And it doesn't understand that you're trying to lose weight is not that you, we're, we're in scarcity. Like we're out of food. Like your body doesn't understand that. So it wants to keep you safe. And if there is a threat in the environment, you being pregnant is not going to keep you safe. So you're absolutely right. And no, I will say cutting out gluten, if you have lost your period and it has is related to like Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, and we know that gluten is a trigger for those TPO antibodies and subsequently attacking your thyroid, then in that, at that point, but I would have labs to see that your thyroid ain't right and stuff is going on, then I would come mm -hmm. in with that. But you're right to say, generally speaking, it is not a matter of cutting things out. It's actually adding things in. And to add another layer to that is the reality of allostatic load for certain populations. We know that minorities, especially like black women have a higher allostatic load. That is that every single day they are under a lot more stress. If you know that generationally speaking, uh, maybe your family is Japanese. They were in Japanese uh, concentration camps. Maybe they come from the Holocaust period. There is 
generational lineage that's imprints on the DNA. By the way, the mitochondria that you have that fuels your cells came from your mama. So that lineage as well, that you may already have a higher threshold for stress. Now, why does this matter? You could get a cortisol test done. You could get a nudge test, an ASI test. You could get a blood test. And your cortisol might look like it's in like the normal levels, maybe even optimal levels. But for you, you have more receptors and you are more primed, which means that although like everything looks normal in labs, if your provider is not coupling that with what you're telling them, which is your past medical history, your family's past medical history, your trauma. So if you've ever been gone through a significant trauma, those kinds of things actually influence our hormones. They can influence our receptors. And so Something as little as like going from, let's just say 2000 calorie diet to like 1800 calorie diet when you already have an allostatic load, when you also are under threat of maybe losing your job or you have a terrible boss and you're over-exercising like, and all of these things are compounded can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And when you look back and you just see it on paper, you're like, that shouldn't do that. But that's why it don't matter if it's on paper. Like it matters what is true for you and what's true for your body. Does that all make sense? Yes, absolutely. What would you say are like a few tips that you have if someone does have very high stress levels to like help manage that? That could like hopefully help them like regain their cycle, like things that they right. can do. Okay, so we usually go to to exercise, right? When people have a high amount of stress, and why is that? That's because. We go back, go back to like your cave woman self and you're under a lot of stress. And that's because there's like a predator or like a tribe is coming in to invade. You want to move big muscles. So that can be helpful in the acute. So I have patients that like when they're like, I feel the stress creeping up, it's anxiety, it's coming into a panic attack. Sometimes I'm like, do 10 jump squats. And that will help start move that energy, that epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, like it's got something to do. However, if you've lost your period, know that exercise is great, but if you are an A-type personality, I'm raising my hand, um, I'm an A-type personality. So if we're going to do it, we're all in and we've got to be the best at it kind of situation. And so if you're an A-type personality or you're under a lot of stress, the default is usually like, oh, I want to go like cycling. I want to lift weights. And all those are, are great behaviors and lifestyle, but like, are they right for you right now? I've had runners who've lost their period and I'm like, let's just dial back on running and their period comes back. And then we work them up in a way so that they can get back to running. When I was a yoga instructor, something that I recognized was that the most stressed out people they all wanted to do Ashtanga. They were like, oh, well, vinyasa flow and women moving and all this stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, there. I was like, some people's just worst nightmare because I was like, your work lies in this space in between and your inability to slow down and be present when your body is everything dysfunctional in your life. And they're like, I hate this woman. <laughs> I'm like, you need yin yoga. You actually need to slow down and you need to be in this space. You need to be present. I mean, those are the people who get up and they're like, I'm not taking Shavasana. I don't have time for that. I'm getting up. I'm not going to meditate. And I'm like, oh, this is what you need though. And so sometimes the thing you least want to do is the thing that you actually need. So that's the exercise piece is that yes, exercise, but maybe it looks different than what you've been doing. 
like you were saying a mental exercise too like not just exercising it's more mental yeah well you were saying earlier when we were talking that you've gotten into walking walking uh is so great it is so and it's like the unsung hero of like stress reduction because yes you're getting movement yes you're getting endorphins the cross-body action of moving your arms and legs helps your corpus callosum really strengthen. And that is what bridges left and right lobes so that you can problem solve. Now, women brains, like the, the female sex brain, is way better equipped at multitasking and problem solving because we can be analytical and emotional. And with that, when you're walking and you're moving, you're actually strengthening that. So that's a time where I'm like, if you're a ruminator, because like most of us are ruminators, like the, the human, like the, the whole entire like, you know, species wouldn't exist if women didn't like replay life's events and be like, how can I do things better? And yeah. oh, are these emotions okay? <laughs> Relationship, that's, that's what we do. We keep the tribe cohesive, okay? So, but like it doesn't totally serve as a modern human. But that's the time to go to walk and to actually put in your ear pods and pretend you're having a conversation, you know, uh, or your headphones, whatever, and just be like, talk through what's going on for you or just think about it. You're getting more oxygen in your brain as well. So that can help with stress. And of course, meditation can be fantastic. Journaling can be fantastic. But, you know, and beyond the pill, I think there's like two pages of stress reduction practices to which I've had a lot of women say, that's really overwhelming. Am I supposed to do all of this? I'm like, no, it's that 75% of that is never going to work for you. And you've got to test out what works for you and what's true for you. And it just depends in the moment. Like, uh, so, you know, for me, I like to wake up, get some movement. I love to use a Muse headband because I'm an A-type data-driven person. And I like to see my data of meditation and track it. And, you know, I had a whole practice of doing that in the morning. Well, I got sick with coronavirus and I literally thought I was going to die for three weeks. And that just came into like, you know, that gratitude practice you've had, that's all you're going to do. Anchor into your gratitude. What do you have to be grateful for? Like resonate in that gratitude and talk really kind to yourself. So if you guys don't know, COVID is associated with, there's like a lot of inflammation going on. That's where many people are experiencing side effects of, well, not side effects, but sequelae. So gratitude is fantastic for shifting your mental state, but talking nice to yourself can actually help lower inflammation. So I really default in that. I couldn't get up and walk. I couldn't, doing deep breathing exercises, (laughs) just like laughing. (laughs) Like, yeah, no, uh, that wasn't happening. Meditation, yeah, I would lay there and meditate to the best of my ability, but my particular COVID symptoms, so while I, at one point being on the pill, I developed migraines. They switched my formulation, migraines went away. Never had migraines since. Yay, till COVID. And those migraines have been wicked painful. So I'd love to lay there and meditate and breathe, and but sometimes my head is pounding and nothing is touching it and my eyes hurt and everything. Like with COVID, your eyes like, burn. They hurt. They feel like they're going to pop out of your head. It's just, it's a really good time guys. Um, so, you know, what I'm demonstrating there though, is how here's the ideal. Here's all the things I was doing. I had to adapt. The adaptable organism survives, not the rigid one. So also know that like, cause we like to do this. I had a great meditation practice. Now I fell off of it. I'm bad. I need to get back. I fell off the wagon. No, you are in a new phase you are adapting. Good job, human. Good job, organism. Adapt and try something new. And so 
I just give all these ideas and I give these examples for you to know that I don't care what title someone has, what book they've written, I do not care. You are the expert about what is true for you and what is best for you in your body. And sometimes you are just going to be an experiment and you're going to trial and error. There's, you know, there's all of these self-help gurus who are like, here's the perfect right way to do everything. And I figured it all out and my life's so perfect. And I'm like, <laughs> bullshit. Um, because that's just not the reality. Being a human is a super messy process. And as soon as you think you've got something figured out, life is like, <laughs> here's this. So be adaptable, be less dogmatic, be gentle with yourself above all. No, I love that. That's so helpful. I mean, for a selfishly for me and in, in my definitely my mindset and train of thinking, but that's going to be so helpful for so many people. Cause they feel like a lot of the times we all just think that there's this magic pill, not the birth control, but just a pill in general or a supplement or an adaptive. No, I mean, I thought that was a magic pill. Okay. That's fair. I thought it was magic. I'll take this every day and my stress will go down. And it's always been like a cornucopia of things that have always helped, but no, that's so tremendously helpful. I actually have a few questions about the birth control pill that I should have asked you a little bit earlier, but more like kind of general questions. One of the questions from someone was, what can you do if your doctor is really trying to push you to like either go on the pill or stay on the pill, but you know, say they've listened to you on podcasts, they've read your book, they've listened to other experts, like they don't, they're not comfortable. Like what are your tips for them? Yeah. So, okay. First thing is that you may need a second opinion and you may need a different provider. And on drbrighton.com, I have been asked so many times, how do we find another doctor to work with? We are actually... That actually, that resource is live um, and you can go to drbrighton.com and it is our medical review panel. So we have practicing physicians and other clinicians who are reviewing the articles of ours that are right within their scope and we are linking to them. So you can find that doctor and find someone to work with. So that's first thing is that you might need a second opinion and it's just, you know, I used to say, find someone who listens, but that's. And then all everybody told me that's actually not that helpful. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me more about that. Um, because it's hard to find someone who listens. We've got a lot of issues in the United States with like insurance and providers and where do you live and all of that. So we're putting together a resource to make that even easier. And people that I am vetting and not just because I have databases like the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and IFM, and those are great databases, but it's hard when you're trying to find something very specific. So know that you might have to have a second opinion. If you're there with that provider, you know, coming with your data and curiosity. So, you know, I talk about this, you can get into this in chapter four of Beyond the Pill, where it's like, I have heavy periods. And your doctor says, well, we've got a pill for that. Here, take birth control pill. And you can say to them, well, I'm just curious, would you be willing to test me? Like, could this possibly be anemia? Could this possibly be fibroids? And if you believe that's true for me, like what would be the best lab test? And this feels a little exhaustive. Like if you're like, I just want help, just ask for help. But you have to recommend your, do your doctor is a human. So if you come at them, you know, aggressive, demanding, there was this rhetoric for a while where people are like, your doctor works for you, tell them what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Um, they will have a fight, flight, or freeze episode. So if you hit them hard, their cortisol, their stress hormones are going to rise. They're going to try to get out of the room as fast as they can. They might push back and might just shut down and stop listening to you. So 
to get what you want. You're going to treat them like you would other humans. And if your doctor is refusing to work you up, to run lab testing, to refer you to someone else, then you say, I need you to document in your charts, why, in my chart notes, why you are refusing. So for, let me back that up and say it much more clearly so you guys get this. So <clears throat> you actually want to say to your doctor, I need you to document within my chart the procedures, tests, you know, fill in the blank, that you are refusing me right now and your reasoning for that. This has to be documented in chart notes and you've asked for that and then you tell them, I'm going to request my chart notes immediately after this and I will be taking yeah. it to a colleague for a second opinion. Most doctors will pause in that moment. Um, okay. So a great doctor would not have, they would have like heard you. I mean, for the most part, you know, I, if my patients want labs, I run their labs. It's their data. They have a right to access the data in their body. Your doctor, sometimes what you may actually hear from a doctor is the thing they didn't want to admit. And that is I'm not actually trained to interpret these labs and the results will not change what I'm recommending for you because the pill is the best thing I have. That's good to know. That is awesome that they tell you that because that's okay, right? If it's, if it's outside your wheelhouse, say it. That gives the patient the opportunity to go to someone else and that's when you can say, well, can I get a referral to someone else? So understand that that is completely acceptable in medicine. Um, if a test is not going to change the treatment, then, and that's something I've said to patients, like these test results will not change my treatment. Like this is what I'm recommending. And like whatever we find from that, it's not going to change things. So, and understand that I can order this, but your insurance may not cover it. And then the patient, and I document that and the patient has the right to make that call. For me, I just don't feel like a doctor should be a gatekeeper to getting data about your body. Your doctor, you know, something like a CBC, your complete blood count. I've had, you know, I've seen chart notes where a doctor said, oh, this person had this like a couple years ago and it was fine. No need to do it again. And I'm like, but your blood cells turn over every three to four months. Like, no, we need to actually look at that again. So that's just really important language for you to have. And then in finding a doctor, another thing that is really great is to ask your friends. And as much as you see doctors out there that are on social media who are ready to pounce on any influencer who talks about health at all. And I get it of like, okay, if you're going to start giving medical advice, we've got a problem on social media. That's just yeah. dangerous and reckless. But when someone's telling their personal story, you need to just scroll on, get off of their page. If they are telling their personal story, and even if they're getting the details wrong of like what's happening with medicine, you don't have a right to come in and shut them down and tell them they can't talk about this. You can say, hey, as a helpful point of clarification, and I've definitely done this, like it's a helpful point of clarification, you're actually talking about this lab test and this is what would be like most helpful. Like there's an opportunity to educate and to help, but not to come in and hijack someone else's social media account or because like, here's the thing. Social media is our house, right? Our accounts are like our house. Would you be like, would you be at the neighbors next door and hear someone and be like, mm, I'm just going to barge my way into your house and actually tell you you're wrong. And you shouldn't be telling things about your story. Like this ain't your dinner party, yo. Like you don't get to just come in. So <laughs> with that, like paying attention to like, if you hear someone had a great experience, then, Hey, who was your doctor? How did you find them? Ask yeah. these questions. It really, we can start sharing this information with one another of like, 
you know, women ask me in Portland, like, who do you, who do you get your pap smears from? No, I think Planned Parenthood is a great place to go for pap smears. They do those all day, every day. Same with getting like IUDs placed. Um, and it can be really economical. And I've had patients get breasts, you know, a screening exams, like when their doctor wouldn't, like it wouldn't be covered. Like, so there's, you can leverage that. But I told them there's actually a student. So there was a student who was a year under me and she shadowed me for two years. And that is who now does my pap smears because I was so intimate with her and I actually taught her so much stuff that like, I know, I know her work. I know how good she is. And that's who I went to. And so and then she was like, you told everybody that now my practice is full. I'm like, okay, now we have to like find other people. Um, cause it's like, yeah, I don't think I'm like, I don't think I could actually do my own pap smear. I know there are women out there. That'd be pretty impressive if you could though. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even like, when I was having my son, uh, my midwife, I had naturopathic midwives and they were like, reach around if you want to fill your son. I have a really long torso. Could not. Could not. I was like, how am I going to just get the thing out of me? Like, yeah, really. Get it out. <laughs> That's it. And if it never had a baby. You're trying to chill. I, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like fertility, how does the pill impact fertility in general? Like, obviously it suppresses your ovaries, but if say you're on it for a decade plus and you're just got married, you're in your early thirties, like you want to start having a kid in the next couple of years, like how far in advance should you try to transition off the pill to give your body like a chance to kind of recalibrate? So really the minimum would be about six months. And that's because it can take some time. So the average woman, nothing going on, nothing wrong. It can take three months before you start ovulating again. So with that in mind, we want to give ourselves some buffer time to get our period back at ovulating again, but also start nourishing the eggs. And so what I say is mom is both the seed and the soil. She's not just where, like, you're not just, like, so often it's just like, have a healthy egg, get pregnant. But also, we want good soil, right? We want to cultivate that baby in a healthy body. So spending a good six months can be really beneficial. That egg that you become pregnant with, it goes through a 90-day maturation process. So that means getting on a prenatal, definitely the minimum. By the time you need folate, you, like, you don't even know you're pregnant. So baby needs folate before that, that uh, test is even pregnant. Ugh, that test is even positive. Um, yeah, I'm like, words, use them. <laughs> so with that, if you're in your early, early 30s, that's going to look a little bit different. If you're in your later 30s, that's something to consider coming off like maybe a year or two in advance. Now, we are told that birth control has no impact on our fertility. Understand that studies done on women with birth control, they're done on young, healthy females, no pre-existing conditions. If you were put on birth control for painful periods, irregular periods, you probably have a pre-existing condition. It could be polycystic ovarian syndrome. It could be endometriosis. How do we know for sure? We have to test. And those can complicate. Those can cause issues with infertility. But the other thing to recognize is that we use birth control to delay pregnancy. So we hear a lot. There's lots of women who say birth control may be infertile. We're lacking in a lot of research. Like a lot of research needs to be done in women's health in general. And right now the consensus is that no, birth control does not directly impact your fertility or lead to infertility. But I would say that if you're using birth control to delay pregnancy, and then you're coming off of birth control 
at like 38 hoping to get pregnant, well, you are advanced in age in terms of reproductive health. So it may be that we have pre-existing conditions. That might be why women say birth control caused me to be infertile. It might be that we have advanced age. If your mom you know, went into menopause at 45, then waiting until 38 might not be the best. And this is where having an individualized discussion with a provider is really, really important. And, you know, the other thing we look at is the nutrient depletions that can be associated with hormonal birth control. So CoQ10 being one that protects the mitochondria and protects your eggs. It's an antioxidant. We decrease CoQ10 production as we age and birth control can deplete that. So as we get older, this issue with like, you know, women saying like my eggs are not healthy, like I'm having a hard time getting pregnant, it can be this compounded effect. So we can't say birth control causes infertility because there's a lot of things going on with that. And, you know, with that, because it's, there's so many variables, it's like, I don't know that we'll have a study that directly says birth control caused infertility as much as the way that the birth control was used, the way that nobody screened you, nobody looked out uh, for you when you started birth control. You know, we like, it's, it's upwards of 58% of women are using birth control for symptom management. Well, if you get on that at 15 and then at 35 you want to get pregnant, you have 20 years of who knows what was going on in your body. So those are kind of the considerations with that. Um, and, you know, there's things like the depo shot that it can take like 18 months before women start ovulating regularly. Is that true for everyone? No. We all have those friends that got pregnant on the pill, IUD, the depo shot, that things didn't work the way they were supposed to. But we also, you know, have likely heard a story and we likely know someone, but here's the thing. We don't talk about infertility struggles as much or miscarriages because society's done a really good job at letting us know that's uncomfortable and you should be ashamed because you're broken. And the reality is, is a lot of us have had these struggles. And I know for me personally, when I opened up talking about my miscarriage and how difficult that was for me, you know, we were right at that window of like, I'm about to tell everybody because I'm 12 weeks and I miscarried in the middle of a patient visit and had to go to the ER immediately. And, you know, when I started talking about that, so many other women were like, I actually had a miscarriage too. I'm like, well, I never knew that. And they're like, well, I didn't know you did. And it's like, yeah, nobody talks about it. Well, I think that's something that like, you know, they say, don't tell anyone that you're pregnant you know, until after that 12 week mark or that hump. And from my perspective, like, God forbid something does happen. I'm going to have to talk about that too. Like I opened Mm -hmm. up, we had infertility struggles. I got pregnant with Manipure and IUI with my son Ezra. I got to the point where we just, I tried everything holistic and natural. And I was seeing a functional medicine doctor doing acupuncture. And I'm like, you know what? 28 years old. I just, let's see what can happen with this. And we ended up getting pregnant. It was beautiful. And Ezra is absolutely amazing. And you know, when I was pregnant, I wanted to tell everyone and I'm like, God, for something happens, I'm going to open up about that too. But we opened up all about our infertility journey and that helps so many people and women and couples not feel alone. And I think that's the, hardest part is you feel so lonely during something like that. Like I miss, like it's such a, a taboo, taboo topic to talk about. Now with fertility, what would you say are some of the best ways women can prepare their bodies before they're trying to conceive? Mm-hmm. So starting to optimize your hormones right away. Like, you know, if you have 
TMS, if you have any of the stuff that you were told that's normal, that horrible part of being a woman is just normal, it's not. It's common. That's, that's who goes and sees the doctor, people who are struggling. So start to work with your hormones where they're at now. If you've got cortisol issues because of stress, you need to handle that. If you've got thyroid imbalance, that's going to be way worse once you get pregnant. And it's you know going to make it harder to get pregnant and maintain a pregnancy. If you're struggling with estrogen and progesterone levels, you definitely want to get that dialed in. So yes, we want to start with that hormone piece. And then looking at diet as well. So there's nutrient optimization. So eating lots of nutrient-dense foods. So lots of vegetables. If you can hang with organ meat, that is some of the most nutrient-dense meat there is. I personally think it's disgusting, but I, I roll with it. Um, I can do some bone marrow. Like there's certain things. When I was living in France, uh, foie gras, I was like, mm-mm, I don't, mm-mm, fatty, like diet. Uh, or goose liver, but my son loved it. Um, so they use a lot of organ meats there. My son has been raised eating organ meat, so he's seven now, and he still has no problem. And I will eat it, and I will handle it when I'm in front of him because I'm like, you have to model this. But <laughs> organ meats are uh, really nutrient-dense. If you are vegan or vegetarian, you definitely got to be on your game for making sure that you're getting the right kind of nutrients in. And that's something that I would say that vegan and vegetarian, yeah, you're often told you should check your iron, you should check your B12. We all should check that three to six months before conceiving. We should be doing screening labs. So understanding like, do you have any underlying infections? Do you have autoimmune disease? So there are certain autoimmune conditions that can be made worse. And so how do we know what to test for you? Your, your doctor should go through your family history and that really helps dial in where we should test. And then in terms of nutrition, also looking at blood sugar regulation. So fat and protein with every meal. Healthy fats are made for much better hormones and easier time uh, regulating hormones and pregnancy or and getting pregnant as well. It's like that fat-free phase. I hope that that's done. Yeah, but it's also like I'm like, man, we really should have been doing data on if when whenever people self-select for restrictive diets of any kind, I'm like, please, like, can we just record data and watch them? Like, because it would be unethical to do a study where like we put someone on the carnivore diet. That would be unethical given the research that we have. Like, if you believe that, you know, based on the research, they could get cardiovascular issues, you know, all of that. So, but if people are going to put their hands up and say, I'm going to do it anyways, well, let's record that data. Let's track them. Let's yeah. see what happens. So with that, Um, so there's the blood sugar regulation piece. You want to start tending to your relationship. So this is the thing that people don't talk about. They're like, take your prenatal, eat right and exercise to help with fertility. Also handle your relationship because whatever is an issue right now in your relationship is going to be 1 million times worse once you have a baby. And I say this from personal experience and because the thing that like I, you know, say to my husband, there's things that like you know, women will say, or they put in the media or like people say when they're a group of people. And I will just say that's BS. And he, I I always am like, listen, I am in a very privileged position of speaking with thousands of women behind closed doors. And what women say to me behind closed doors are very, very different than what they say when other people are listening or when they want to have that like, you know, because we all want to have the the perfect marriage and be the perfect parent. There's no such thing, right? We're all going to flail and fail and grow from it. And that it's all a growth opportunity. But 
definitely tending to your relationship. And um, it, that's important because you have to have that compatibility. I don't have great research to say that like, if you're not feeling you know, compatible with your partner and supported and all of this, that like that, that might be a harder time getting pregnant or, or a more difficult pregnancy. But I think we all can use a little bit of common sense to be like, if you don't even like having sex with them, then like, it's gonna be really hard getting pregnant because you're not going to be <laughs> in the mood to do that. Right. Or, <laughs> and, and to understand that like, when it comes to like libido and getting women in the mood, that's a, that's a long game. Okay. It's not like, Ooh, we start making out. It's not like the movies. Okay. It's like, we need to feel safe and secure. We need our love language tapped into, but we also need these acts of service, even if that's not your primary love language. But it's the modern day version, like you do the dishes, you get the oil change, you do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, and like women, we are capable of doing all this stuff ourselves. However, it's also, and, and, I'm, and just to be clear, I am talking a very, it's, it, this is a heteronormative kind of relationship because otherwise, you'd be going a different route with like IUI and um, all of that. And, and that's totally fine to do. You still need to like have your relationship in order. You need to work on all yeah. of that. But if you're actually going to be uh, having sex with a male partner to get, for, for the purpose of capturing sperm, they have to be tending to the house and the children and all of that. If you already have children, all of that for you to feel safe and secure and protected. So that comes into stress reduction, relationships, community, that whole piece as well. So there's a whole chapter beyond the pill about fertility and what to do, very specific nutrients to, and what they do and how to support yourself that I would encourage everybody to read as well. No, I love that. Thank you. And I love that you brought in just like your relationship with your significant other because that's a huge role. And I don't know any of my friends or anyone I know of that has, ha that has had a baby and like doesn't fight with their spouse for the next X yeah. amount of months and it really, everything just escalates. So that's very, very needed. When should a woman consider freezing their eggs? Like at what age? Um, mm -hmm. Say they're not married at like 32. Should they start thinking, hey, maybe I should freeze these? Like what's going on? Yeah. So, you know, egg freezing is pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty controversial topic because it's like, one, how, how young should you undergo this procedure? You know, thinking, so there's that piece, like how, how young should we start and what's too late? And at 35, we know that like, basically you've been a human on this planet for like 35 years and your eggs have been exposed to a lot of stuff and the environment's not so great that like eggs can be compromised. And so with advanced maternal age, we can see more risks of, you know, certain genetic issues. And although I will say that we, actually see more of those genetic issues in a younger population. If people are like confused about that, it's because more younger people are having babies. So that's why we see more of it. But so with that, uh, you know, generally you'll hear experts say like before age 35 is a good idea, but when you are removing these eggs and everything, you are setting up for the future for reproductive technologies or how you plan to become pregnant. And so with that in mind, it's a really good idea to meet with a reproductive endocrinologist, somebody who specializes in this and can not just someone who's like, oh, I specialize in fertility, but like infertility, like we'll take you all the way to the end of like, if you're doing IVF procedures, so then you can understand the full scope and then have that in the context of your family history of understanding your genetics, of understanding your health factors. 
So it is something that like, I would be hesitant to be like, yeah, at 28, you should just go and you should do this because it really depends. And like most of the time in medicine, the answer is it depends. And this is one of those, it really depends. And meeting with that specialist, again, that you don't want just anyone. You want the specialist who is actually that do does egg retrieval, who is doing IVF, who's doing yeah. these procedures because they are one and you want them board certified. They're one going to be most on top of what is currently the thought, what is the, uh, you know, what are the procedures that are available? And then two, this is what they do all day. So bringing that individualized attention can really help you get dialed in on what's best for you. No, I love that. I'm actually bringing on my reproductive endocrinologist at the infertility center to chat a lot about this because I think it's, you need someone that you're going to trust and someone that can do everything for you and that's going to advocate, advocate for you. But it's like, mm-hmm. so, you know, I have a lot of, I'm 30 right now and I have a couple of friends who are around my age and they're not married. They're not dating anyone. And they're like, what do I do? Like, should I look into this? Should I not look into this? And everyone's body obviously is so different, but I think just having someone you trust would make all of the difference. What are your and t- the talk price. I, I think that's important too because yeah, these can be really expensive procedures. And, you know, adoption is always an option, but what doesn't get talked about with adoption is that's also really expensive. So the cheapest way to get pregnant is on your own. Um, and yet at the same time, it's not always the most realistic way. So making sure that you have that conversation as well because I have had patients who have their eggs frozen and then they realize that they didn't save money for the procedure in the future. Oh, that's heartbreaking. It's definitely all everything. That's a huge, huge, huge investment. I always say like in a joking way, it's just the beginning of, of all of the expenses of having, of having a kid. What are very expensive. (laughs) What are your tips on if you don't have a period and you're trying to conceive? Well, you're going to want to get testing done. So if you haven't had a period, so let's, uh, if you haven't had a period in three months, you really should be getting tested. If you have a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome, then, you know, and you come off the pill, we expect it to take six months for your period to come back. But if you're actively um, looking to conceive and you've had no period, getting tested. So why this is important is because the average young, healthy couple, nothing going on, they are going to take about six months to conceive. So it it can take six months. And so we don't really worry about them until like a year. However, if you don't have a period, you are not considered just this healthy, normal person, right? Doesn't mean you're a freak or anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is a condition and it needs to be investigated. So you need to get lab testing done. You know, sometimes it's an issue. One of the most common things that I'll, I'll see when it's like, no, I eat, exercise, got all of the lifestyle diet dialed in, is there's a thyroid issue going on. And this is really important because your baby, you become pregnant, they depend on your thyroid hormone. We know from studies that if you are have inadequate amounts of thyroid hormone, specifically T4, that's what your thyroid makes and that's what crosses the placenta, baby can have developmental delays later in life. And so there's actually a cohort study where they looked at up to 16 years of age and found that hypothyroid mothers, those children were behind their cohort. So it also can result in um, miscarriage and pregnancy complications. So we definitely want to make sure the thyroid is healthy, which is having a full thyroid panel, TSH, free T4, free T3, 
TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies. TPO antibodies alone without any thyroid dysfunction are associated with increased risk of miscarriage. So that's important to know as well. And if you can get your doctor to do reverse T3, that can be really insightful as well, but not all doctors are willing to do that. So, and to understand that the same mechanism that makes your TSH go up, and that's a brain hormone that screams at your thyroid to make thyroid hormone, can also make prolactin levels go up. So prolactin is a hormone that's associated with breastfeeding, but it can be elevated and block your period. So if your prolactin is going high, you know, with, with testing, they're going to want to probably rule out a prolactinoma, which is a benign brain tumor. But you also want to be checking a full thyroid panel as well. No, that's so helpful. Thank you. Actually, speaking of breastfeeding, what are your tips on getting your period back post-breastfeeding for a year plus? So post-breastfeeding, so when you say post-breastfeeding, we're done. We weaned. Dunzo. Totally weaned. Okay. No, more, no more cow. Okay. Because it really uh, depends. I, sometimes women uh, have come to me and they're like, well, I'm still breastfeeding. I'm like six months postpartum. I want to get my period back can you help me get my period back? And I'm like, you, this is one of those like nature's going to run its course kind of situations. And we could try to like biohack your body into like ovulating, menstruating again. But, and sometimes it's because they want to get pregnant right away. Not a good idea. Um, you are, you're giving up a lot of nutrients in that breast milk. So you want to like get the, get the calcium back in the bones and get your, get your health optimized before next baby. So if it's you know 18 months, you've, you've weaned, you haven't gotten your period back, again, you can wait three months and see and track if there's symptoms. So definitely track if there's symptoms too because there might not be a period, but cyclically there might be breast swelling, there might be headaches, there might be breakouts, there might be other things going on that uh, give you clues. Something that like if you are you know weaning, you can start on seed cycling. No, this is not a food-based treatment that's going to get you your period back all on its own. It's an adjunct therapy of really getting you to start paying attention to your cyclical nature, giving yourself nutrients that you need to supply your body with. We want to have the lab workup at like three months. If you had PCOS, it might be your doctor might recommend more like six months, but we want to get the lab workup of like what is going on. What's your FSH and LH? Is your brain talking to your ovaries? You know, what's your estrogen look like? Are your ovaries responding? We're not going to do progesterone at that time because that you didn't have any progesterone really going on because you're not presumably not ovulating. Postpartum thyroiditis, this is something that when you look at it from a worldwide perspective, one in 12 women develop an autoimmune condition that can lead to hypothyroidism. So this could come back to the thyroid as well. So getting the lab testing done, making sure that you're eating enough, that you're sleeping, and that you're, uh, if you're still getting up at night, not exposing yourself to a lot of light, making sure that you're not over-exercising. Sometimes when women stop breastfeeding, that's when they're like, I'm going to just hit it at the gym and get my pre-baby body back. Ain't no such thing. There <laughs> is like, a baby changed your body. I mean, you grew better you could grow a human in your body. Like my, my waistline is never going back to like the way it was like before a baby because my ribs expanded. That's just the way it is. Like um, there are just things that change that aren't going to necessarily go back. And I don't recommend waist trainers and things like that because there's a bunch of organs in there, you guys. Like there's a bunch of organs. Um, look like they actually just hurt. Like they hurt, look like they hurt really bad. Like, man, we had to fight to get out of corsets and now corsets are making a comeback. And again, 
what does it come down to? Like, I mean, in part, it might be some body dysmorphia. Uh, it might be more of that uh, patriarchal mindset of like, we have to shape our bodies to look the way men find them attractive. Uh, you know, it might be just that you're like, this is my body and I want it to look this way. But it is something that like, I, I've had patients, especially with, you know, more celebrities using that and that my patients are like, well, what if I just use that after baby? And I'm like, so baby also squished your guts around. I don't know what happened in there and neither do you. Like if you're body, and I'm like, go to Pilates, work your obliques. Like, you know, the, you've got a natural corset called your obliques, yeah. like work those. See where you can go with your body naturally before you have something that could potentially restrict your lung capacity, which decreases with age as it is. And from someone who had COVID, you really appreciate your lungs when they're gone. So make sure, make sure you're just loving on those. But, you know, those kinds of, the same things that work like with post-pill amenorrhea and amenorrhea in general, those things can work um, as well. And again, always asking why and getting the work up and not going too long because, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes you're like, this is so sweet not to have a period for like six months except that you may not be bathing in the hormones that are protecting your brain, your heart, your bones from aging prematurely. So if you're starting to get fine lines and wrinkles, your breasts are starting to sag, that could be a sign you don't have enough estrogen. So the question is why? What are your ovaries doing? What's happening in your body? So interesting. I mean, I can literally ask you 7,000 more questions. <laughs> um, I have one more question that's to do with fertility, and I promise I will wrap this up for you. Um, there's dozens of other questions. By the way, they were submitted that I still didn't get to, but I will maybe have to have you on again if you're open to it. Postpartum oh. hormones, what are your tips on just preparing your body um, for the fourth trimester after mm -hmm. pregnancy? Do you know that's my first book? No, I yeah. I'm so focused on every book I am in my closet now because my son woke up. Every book that I have is about getting your period back. That when I had Ezra, I didn't purchase one book about preparing myself, and that is second pregnancy. I am doing that ASAP. Yeah, that's actually born out of my own experience. That back when I had my son, I was like, why are there so many books on preparing for childbirth, and why are there so many books? Again, come from a big Hispanic family, I'm like childbirth and breastfeeding. I got this. Like. This. Um, I've like been, I was in the delivery room when like my brother and sister were born. Mind you, I was watching Scooby Doo, but I was there. Um, and it was normalized. And breastfeeding is like, I mean, the way it works in um, Hispanic culture is like someone's breastfeeding, they'll pass you the baby. You might be nine years old. You go burp the baby for them. Like everybody's got like this role. So, but the thing was, is I was like, there's no books on postpartum health because what happens? all about mom, all about mom. You have a baby, all about baby. Who cares about mom? Like, and, and once you're in childbirth, it's like, who even cares about mom? She's a piece of me in the way between me and getting that baby out. Like, that's what it feels like, right? And so when I was in National Valley Medical School, I actually uh, did the childbirth classes. So I went through childbirth classes. I thought I was going to also train to be a midwife. And then I was like, I don't do well with no sleep. I can't do that. Like, I can't. Mm -mm. not I'm not good with that and then I went and had a baby and I was like well we tested that hypothesis and it's very true I am not good with no sleep so that's really was my own experience of being like there's no like postpartum books and that was like back when like almost no one was calling it the fourth trimester so 
it's called the new, the new mom's guide to navigating the fourth trimester. So it's healing your body naturally after childbirth. And I made it so that it fits in a diaper bag and you can hold it in one hand while you're breastfeeding and it gets to the point. Cause you know what I hate more than anything. Okay. This is my E-type showing. I really hate birth books. I hate like the majority of them out there that are just like fluff and stuff. And let me tell you about your feelings and, oh, she can do it. And so can you. Those books need to exist because people do need them. I was not one of those people. There was actually a book that I threw out of my house. I was like, I just was like, I don't ever want to see that book. I hate it. I hate everything about <laughs> it. Um, and so with that book, I talk a lot about like, what are the essentials that you need to know postpartum? The biggest thing when it comes to hormonal health postpartum is your adrenal glands. So I like to explain your hormones like a pyramid and you need a strong foundation. At the base of your pyramid is going to be adrenal hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, DHEA, aldosterone, and insulin. So that's a pancreatic hormone. That's your foundation. That foundation is not right. The rest of your hormones are going to be off, but it isn't necessarily an ovarian or thyroid problem. So the base is going to be adrenal pancreas. Above that is going to be the thyroid and the tippy top. That is going to be sex hormones. And the sex hormones are the ones that make us crazy. So we're like, like legitimately can make you feel like you're crazy. I say this as a woman who's had estrogen dominance and all kinds of issues. I'm not saying you're crazy. I'm saying I have felt crazy and you can feel crazy from these hormones. And so with that, that's where we usually want to work. But really the foundation of where we need to go is with the adrenal and, and insulin factor. And so this is important because when you're postpartum, you don't have a period. You don't have a cycle. You are breastfeeding now. So with that, you go back to the foundation. You need to get sleep. You need to reduce stress. Uh, and like, look, I know I like talk about it in my book where I'm like, I know sleep is not easy when you are postpartum. And I really resent every single human that was like, sleep when baby sleeps. Try to get as much sleep as you can. And I'm like, my baby didn't sleep. Yeah, who are these people who babysit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like when I went to the bathroom, when I ate stuff. Like I had, and days where I had to choose, like, do I eat or do I sleep? And then I would wake up hypoglycemic, like that. And you want to mess with your hormones? Do that. Do what I did. Um, I went back to work at six weeks postpartum. That's me being stupid. So you don't have to like learn from my mistakes, please. So with that, there's the adrenal component and we need to support our adrenal hormones. So we need to be feeding them with B vitamins, B5, magnesium coming in as well. Adaptogenic herbs can be super, super beneficial. So rhodiola, I call it the endurance herb for moms. What's that? I Sorry, I said, yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of um, people have recommended that. Yeah, so rhodiola is great for mental and physical endurance. Licorice is an anti-inflammatory. You find it in so many Chinese medicine formulas because it's just so awesome. And that's, that can keep your cortisol around longer though. So you don't take that until you're ready to be up for the day. So if your baby wakes you up at five, but you're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to nurse and go back to sleep, then you don't take that licorice until you're ready to be up for the day. And then something like ashwagandha, which is another adaptogenic herb or holy basil can be really great at night for like helping that cortisol calm down and those things calm down. So we want to take care of our adrenal glands and then making sure that we're eating those regular meals, fat and protein. If you are postpartum and you're just like, oh my God, I just want to eat. This was me at one point, my husband came home and he found me sitting on the kitchen floor um, with my son and he, so he had to be like, 
eight months old at that point, and we were eating coconut oil out of the jar. And my husband's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I am craving fat so bad. And my son, sure enough, went through a growth spurt. And I, I kid, I drink a lot of breast milk. Um, <laughs> and I produced a lot of breast milk. I actually fed close to, like, I think it was around a dozen other babies whose mom had oh. trouble making uh, breast milk because I was an overproducer. So I would just pump uh, the extra stuff. And, and well, what happened, actually, how we figured this out was I went back to work. My son wouldn't take a bottle. So I had to modify my work schedule and stuff. Um, but everything I pumped just was in the freezer. And I was like, this is going to go bad. And then a friend of mine, she had developed kidney issues while she was pregnant. And she's an acupuncturist. And her daughter has a very rare medical condition. And she didn't want, and so my friend had to have an operation and she had to stop breastfeeding and she didn't want her little girl to be, to get it from a bank meant it had to be pasteurized. So guys, this is like bootleg, like black market breast milk, right? We can do this among friends. I couldn't like advertise this. Um, but also I had been screened for everything. Like I'd been screened for HIV, hepatitis, like all of that. And I also disclosed all the supplements I was on and everything I was doing. So that's actually how that started. And then one mom after another would reach out and be like, I need breast milk. I'm like, okay, I'll hook you up. Oh my God, that's um, amazing. You were able to do that for so many moms. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's also why I have a billion stretch marks on my breasts and <laughs> people, uh, it's just uh, like whenever you see people, like I'm so glad that stretch marks are now something that we're embracing. Cause I was 100%. like, I didn't get stretch marks. Oh, I dodged a bullet. Um, and it's good genetics in terms of not getting stretch marks on my abdomen, but on my breasts. Oh yeah. I so, have my boobs too. It's fine. We all do. Yeah. So yeah, postpartum, you know what? Here's the secret. My husband don't care. Um, he does not even care. Um, but you know, so postpartum, we want to be looking at supporting our adrenal glands, good blood sugar regulation. I think thyroid should be screened about six to 12 weeks postpartum, depending on your symptoms because thyroid dysfunction can be so common and be so difficult for moms. So that's some of the things to look at um, in terms of supporting your overall health, which then by default, the base of that pyramid being built up, those sex hormones are going to be optimized as well. Amazing. Dr. Brighton, thank you so, so much for all of your wisdom. We will definitely have to have you back to answer the rest of the questions, but you have so much amazing information to share. So I cannot thank you enough. Where can everyone find you and learn more from you? Mm-hmm. So you can find me at drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N.com. That's my main hub. I do a lot of education on Instagram. I know everybody learns differently, so I also have YouTube videos. And then for as long as TikTok is around, I'm going to be there making hilarious videos because it's just so much fun. But thank you so much for having me. Um, this is a great conversation. And you guys, if this was helpful for you, please leave a comment below so that we know. Yes, thank you. Thank you guys so much. Talk soon.